Welcome to Follow to Lead, where we discover how to listen for and follow God's call so that we might lead others to God. Our shared stories of inspiration from religious leaders and those active in the educational ministry of the church can help you know better how God is calling you and the role passionate Catholic education plays in spreading His message of faith, hope, and love. Now please welcome the hosts of Follow to Lead, Father Randy Sly and Kyle Pietrantonio. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, Amen. Christ the Teacher, teach us to listen. Teach us to do the deep listening to the sounds of our soul, waiting to hear your voice calling to cast out deeper, to become fishers of men and women, shepherds of souls, to follow your will in order to lead others to the truth, beauty, and goodness only you can offer. Amen. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Well, welcome everybody to Follow to Lead, a journey twice a month into the world of Catholic education, exploring what it means to follow God in order to lead others to Him. I'm Father Randy Sly, your co-host. And I'm Kyle Pietrantonio. Today, Father Robert Spitzer is back with us for a second program. As you may remember from our last episode, Father Spitzer is an accomplished scholar, teacher, theologian, philosopher, author, seasoned leader, and thought leader on leadership. Uh, He was ordained a priest in the Jesuit order in 1992 and served as the president of Gonzaga for 11 years. He is currently the president of the Magis Center. Father Spitzer's other fields of expertise include management, science, finance, ethics, and physics. He has founded six major national institutes, published 11 books, many scholarly articles, and produced nine television series for EWTN. Father Spitzer is a much sought-after speaker, addressing priests, deacons, and educators in dioceses across the U.S. as well as corporate, academic, scientific, and governmental audiences. Uh, Father, welcome back to the program. Thanks so much, Kyle. Great to be with you again. And uh, Father, we're so glad again to have you back for the second program. In uh, the last episode, you actually told us a little bit about yourself. Uh, Could you begin today by just talking about the Magis Center and the resources that you're offering there? Right. Um, We basically have uh, three different kinds of resources. Uh, First, we develop, um, you know, programs in the area of faith and science for um, high school and middle school um, teachers, you know, to put into their classrooms. So there there are full programs, uh, uh, middle school um, uh, classes uh, in uh, what we call uh, communication arts. And also um, we have the uh, Um, uh, high school um, one semester elective course um, that uh, we have called the Catholic Faith and Science. So programs of that kind, which are directed toward high schools, we have parish programs as well. Um, So what we do is we teach the Catholic Faith and Science um, as well as um, other programs to parishes. Uh, we some of them are self-facilitated, and some of them are facilitated by deacons and other qualified instructors in the various dioceses. Um, that also goes by the same uh, uh, name, you know, the Catholic Faith and Science um, at Magis. Uh, we also do programs in um, the area of uh, leadership. Uh, specifically, we do seminars. Uh, with uh, dioceses, uh, with um, convocations of priests, with um, various uh, organizations. Uh, a lot of them are Catholic organizations, but a lot uh, are not. Uh, also with uh, secular organizations of various kinds. Um, and I have directed many of them with many big corporations as well. So um, uh, we call those are our leadership courses. Um, and so we have uh, uh, four, you know, kind of divisions that, that deal with our, you know, high schools and middle schools. We've got our uh, uh, parishes and uh, certainly our, our leadership programs. And then we have a whole area in which we do web outreach. Uh, um, uh, you know, this would be social media, Instagram, Facebook, uh, outreach, uh, various kinds um, into the, uh, um, you know, the, the world of impressions. Um, you know, we're trying, you know, obviously when we're dealing with Catholic schools, or with confirmation or youth ministry, things like that. 
we have a, a basically a captive audience. We're dealing with leadership courses. We have a very captive audience. Um, you know, parishes the same, but uh, there's this vast uh, group of people who are never going to be in a Catholic confirmation class, youth ministry, high school, middle school, etc. Um, and that's where we deal with the internet, uh, um, basically social media, um, certainly Instagram, certainly you know little videos, uh, you know, and our web presence is there on uh, MajaCenter.com. As we mentioned and discussed in our last episode, Father Spitera, young people are facing huge challenges in trying to maintain and strengthen their Christian faith. Mm -hmm. What do you see lacking in the culture of our Catholic schools today uh, that's impacting the faith formation of our young people? Well, I think there's uh, two huge challenges in terms of uh, lacks. The first huge hiatus is we don't have enough courses in faith and science. I know that's not in sometimes in the bishop's requirements. Mm -hmm. um, there are, of course, implications of it. But when you consider that 50% of the church-going Catholics that are going to leave um, uh, their faith altogether, 50% do it for one reason. They think that uh, faith and science contradict. Science is truth, therefore faith is false. And they are just leaving in droves because this is not my survey. This is a Pew survey of 2016 that identified this as the main reason why we are losing our kids. And by the way, the Catholic Church loses them just as fast as any other church. Um, they're just pouring out the doors. A way to stop it is a faith and science course. We have developed one at themajacenter.com. You can just look at it. If you go to Sophia Institute for Teachers, at Sophia Institute for Teachers, just click on the uh, website there. And in the very front page, uh, you can see, get a whole preview of this course um, for the senior year and also for the middle school students called Speak the Faith. And so that would be a huge lack, needs to be uh, definitely taken care of. Um, I'm just begging people to do it. Uh, I've seen turnarounds where we've got, you know, in a class like of 50 kids, um, you know, that three quarters of them were really thinking of leaving their faith. And all of a sudden you can turn the whole thing around in one class and create the next generation of student leaders. I mean, this is unbelievable. So, um, I mean, it's, mm -hmm. it's really fantastic that we could, you know, do this with a single class. So that's what we've done. And we know because of the CARA study, it says 13 years old is the median age that a child makes the decision to leave the church on the basis of faith science problems. 13 is the mm -hmm. median age. So we got to get them in the middle schools too. Um, right. And so it's really, really essential. Uh, leave nothing to chance. Um, that's the first thing that that's really, I think, um, lacking. The second thing that I, I think honestly is missing is I know people think that a lot of the kids are um, believe that our faith is insensitive uh, to the various minorities and, and um, you know, especially, you know, transgender people or um, homosexual lifestyle people. But it, it really isn't a matter of insensitivity to those people. Really, it's a matter of being sensitive to them. The, the lifestyle is so destructive from the vantage point of emotional health and uh, spiritual health. Um, you know, everything from pornography, I mean, you name it. I mean, secular studies prove conclusively that you have a tripling of depression and anxiety and so forth if you don't, if you allow these kids to go into these lifestyles. And you just can't nonchalantly be nice. I mean, right now we're dealing with a 150% increase in the suicides of young girls over a 22-year period. Hello? Is anybody out there? I mean, you got a 63% increase in, in depression and anxiety. You, you, you have a 150% uh, uh, increase in suicides. This is post-COVID. It was only... Uh, you know, about a 60% increase prior to COVID, 
but COVID now has just really pushed it forward. And the Instagram social media has pushed it forward. Is anybody looking at just a 24% increase in homicides? Homicides, you know, among young people. We're talking about folks that are 20 years of age and younger. Uh, by the way, the young men are not better off. Uh, they, they don't have a 150% increase in suicides, but they got about an 86% increase in suicides. So, I mean, that's, uh, that's good enough. Um, you know, something is wrong in the culture. What's wrong is the loss of religion, number one. And number two, the loss of um, standard moral uh, practice. And uh, like I said, you know, with respect to, um, you know, transgender, you get a sexual reassignment surgery. You're talking about a 20 times increase in suicides, actual suicides, you know, moving like from that would be like moving from a 0.6% suicide rate in the general population uh, to a 32% suicide rate in those with sexual reassignment surgery. Should we be talking about this, frankly, with our students? I believe we should. It's very hard, I know, for high school uh, teachers to do this. It's very hard for parents to do this. They don't want to be considered insensitive um, to these populations. But letting them blithely go into lifestyles, which we know, you know, I mean, pornography, we know that the longer you read pornography, the more depressed you become. The longer you read pornography, your religious commitment weakens with each hour of pornographic reading per week. We know it, that we have concrete, the University of Oklahoma study, this huge study, you know, that, that uh, you know, pretty much shows that it'll just go, once you become pornography addict, the odds of you being religious are just about a flat out zero. So, I mean, th that's, you know, the warning signs are all there. And all I can say is, is, you know, we need to stop that too. Now, that's my two big things about the lax. I, I do think Catholic education does a lot of good things. They try to encourage the encounter with Christ. But let me tell you, on the part of the 50% of the students that don't believe in God, don't believe in Jesus, they believe all the cultural propaganda you can possibly get, uh, you know, that says, oh, no, none of this is real. You guys don't have to believe anything. It's all a myth anyway. When in point of fact, there's more scientific evidence for God and Jesus and the soul today than ever before by far. And... <laughs> The, the kids believe exactly the opposite. You can't just put them on the Kairos retreat. It, it's just, you know, they'll get an emotional high, but it won't stick. It won't stick unless there's intellectual conversion. And remember old Augustine and Lonergan, right? Intellectual conversion precedes spiritual conversion. Uh, intellectual conversion means, co you know, that you have some kind of a uh, you know, a sense of confirmed uh, belief, uh, you know, something where you, you're, you, you're confident intellectually in the reasonability of your belief. A spiritual conversion is you have a relationship with God, right? That you have some sort of an encounter that's meaningful and that, you know, where you are speaking with God and, and working with God. Uh, and then finally, spiritual conversion and intellectual conversion must precede moral conversion. That's the way our culture is. We're a highly rational culture, even though sometimes we seem to be irrational when we refuse to look at the facts. But the point is, is if we don't hit that intellectual conversion button in high school and middle school, I'm telling you the spiritual conversion will be a momentary high. But if you do the intellectual conversion before the Kairos retreat or whatever the search retreat, then I'm telling you, those retreats will become instruments of real deep spiritual conversion and conviction. That is a good thing, but we're not doing it yet. And the, the spiritual conversion and the intellectual conversion have to precede the moral conversion. Moral conversion in our society of licentiousness is very, very hard. These kids have to almost become countercultural to live a life that's, you know, uh, uh, you know, relatively, uh, you know, uh, sexually uh, proper, you know, in the eyes of Jesus Christ. And, and so what what is the, the step? The step is to get them you know, into a, a good encounter with Christ, a relationship with Christ, a felt relationship with Christ, as well as the intellectual conviction behind, you know, oh, these feelings are really God. They're not just my feelings. These feelings are really Jesus. They're not just, this is really the Holy Spirit, just not me, uh, you know, that's having the, the, these feelings. And a kid can talk themselves out of even the most authentic religious um, and affective um, uh, feelings and, and connections that they've had on a retreat. Within two weeks, they can talk themselves out of it, listening to their peers or just listening to the propaganda in their own mind. 
And so we got to do the job, intellectual conversion first, then spiritual conversion on top of the intellectual conversion. That's what's going to make it for them. And then kablamo, the moral conversion can take hold and they can start that long process of being countercultural, you know, and, you know, going against all the habits that they have been told are justified. Maybe you can get them out of that. But uh, the main thing right now is we got to be speaking uh, the truth. And right now we got to be speaking the truth to power. And the power isn't the Catholic Church. The power is a pervasive culture, very much controlled by the algorithms, not only of search engines, but the algorithms of all of the various Instagram, social media, Facebook, uh, whatever, uh, you know, TikTok, uh, Twitter. These, these things are very, very controlling of the mentation, the emotional activity of our young people. And that, you know, don't blame religion for the increase in, in suicides. Nay, nay, nay. That was always responsible for the decrease in suicides. Now the American Psychiatric Association has shown this very conclusively in the Kanita Dervik studies, et cetera, um, where, you know, basically you can show that people who are non-religiously affiliated have significantly higher rates of depression, anxiety, uh, suicide, suicidal contemplation, substance abuse, familial tensions, antisocial aggressivity, et cetera. So you look at that and you go, well, you mean religion really did do all this good? Yes, it did. And it has become the scapegoat for the culture to blame because, of course, it is the resistance to the materialistic and egocentric narcissistic culture that sells a whole lot of products, by the way. And, uh, and uh, that narcissistic culture needs to be defeated by something. Religion is the biggest opponent to it. And I'm telling you, we uh, have been the scapegoat now for a good 15 to 20 years. And boy, do they do a good job, a really good propaganda job on our kids not just on traditional, but on social media. So let's get the intellectual conversion back in gear. We need it. It's a huge lack. We've got to get this taken care of. The second thing that is a huge lack is we got to be telling the truth about what these behaviors do. Not with any religious surveys, only with um, secular surveys that are done by the American um uh, psychiatric association or done by the archives of general psychiatry or done by big university studies. They're all, they all prove our point. You get into these immoral lifestyles, you can just expect tripling and quadrupling of suicides or in the case of uh, uh, sexual reassignment surgery, 20 times increase in suicide, et cetera, et cetera, depression, anxiety, substance abuse, et cetera. Uh, Father, one of the things that as you're sharing all of this information, I'm just thinking about what Catholic school leaders are facing in terms of the daunting task of, of basically turning or transforming culture. And I know that one of the things that you're working on now is really helping with faith-focused professional development for Catholic school leaders called the Journey to Excellence Academy. Could you talk a little bit about what that is? You bet. Um, what we try to do is work with uh, uh, good school leaders uh, in our Catholic schools, because uh, obviously, you know, they're going to have to confront, um, you know, what I'm going to call just now, which I'll explain in a moment, level one and level two culture. Um, and it's so easy to embrace level one and level two culture. It, it's endemic to the culture because it, it's, uh, it's, you know, ego comparative advantage with the Instagram, Facebook, social media websites. It's just like they pound and pound and pound it in. It not only begins to affect our students, oh, very much so that, but also the parents and the school leaders. So we have to start, you know, um, resisting that uh, influence of what I call level one, level two culture and get back to level three and level four culture, which has always been the method by which the church has defeated secular culture, even in the times of the Roman Empire. I mean, basically, let's face facts. The, the, you know, the, the Christians were martyred, uh, you know, in the Roman Empire. They had no political influence whatsoever. Yet, as with each martyrdom, with each, you know, group of people that, as it went, were, went to the grave, um, you know, to, uh, to profess their faith, what began to happen? More and more converts to Christianity. It was the most baffling thing to the empire itself. But they were speaking truth to power. 
And the truth is that what will really make you happy is contributive happiness. What will really make you happy is transcendent, faith-filled happiness. And like I said, I'm not just saying this. This is the American Psychiatric Association. This is the Archives of General Psychiatry. This is not the Spitzer Catholic Association. This is basically, uh, you know, a, 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 I think a, the result of very, very good secular studies. Yeah. So at the end of the day, we've got to make a big cultural change, not only um, in the culture itself. That, that would be ideal. But uh, we got to start with school culture. We got to start with household culture. We got to start with parents. We we got to start with um, you know um, teachers and 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 school leaders because it is really true to say that if we can make the school culture a level three and level four culture, that is to say a faith culture and a contributive culture, over against the level one and level two culture, that is to say materialistic and pleasure culture is level one and ego comparative culture is level two. If we can make that one transformation and make that a basis for everything else we do in the school culture, let me tell you, you will not only um, do a great thing for your school administrators and for their families, which is a very good thing as well, you know, but it will then spill over into the teachers. Then it will spill over into the um, uh, student population that those teachers are teaching. And boy, I'll tell you, you know, um, like in the Catholic Faith and Sciences curriculum, I just mentioned, um, you know, for the senior year and for the middle school students, that has a whole section on happiness in it um, and the four levels of happiness. But what we do in our uh, leadership courses with the school leaders is we try to um, to do the four levels of happiness, essentially. Um, and uh, so we start, um, you know, going up the scale and explaining. Uh, by the way, I, I, you know, this is not just in Aristotle, but it's certainly in, in Aristotle's work, right? Um, uh, the Nicomachean Ethics. Uh, so if you look at book one, he basically is asking, well, what is happiness? And, and, and the reason he starts off with the term happiness, you got, well, isn't that kind of trivial? I mean, you know, why, why would you begin with happiness? Of course, everybody wants to be happy, but, you know, uh, why begin there? And, and Aristotle makes this one prescient observation that really influences the whole, what we call eudaimonistic philosophy even to, and theology even today. He said this, happiness is the one thing you can choose for itself. Everything else is chosen for the sake of happiness. Everything else is chosen. For the sake of happiness. So this one definition of this one term that is floating around in the back of our minds, you know, this one little term causes us to select a certain set of principles or causes us to select a certain set of, of um, uh, friends or a certain kinds of careers that we're going to pursue, certain kinds of spouses that we would want you know, if we, if we want to choose a level three and level four spouse rather than a level one and level two spouse, and we're very conscientious about it, oh, I can tell you that one decision is going to make the difference between a happy marriage and an unhappy marriage very quickly, like within five years of the marriage, if you believe the Rosenfeld and Rosler studies. So the main thing that you, we really have to do right off the bat is recognize the power of this word as Aristotle would say. And once we recognize it, now we got to get to the various definitions, right? So Aristotle, he's this dialectician guy, right? He's a philosopher. He's looking at, oh, what do all the other people say happiness is? And he finally gets to about four different levels. By the way, St. Augustine embraces this, not just Aristotle. Um, and of course, St. Augustine, um, you know, and then to St. Thomas Aquinas, and of course, the whole Catholic tradition. And it goes up to, uh, you know, even um, um, Gabriel Marcel, the, the great French philosopher, Catholic philosopher, and the uh, um, uh, Max Scheler, who influenced so much uh, uh, Pope uh, John Paul II, um, uh, Saint uh, John Paul II now. Um, and the uh, idea would be that that uh, all of these people understood these four levels, but they knew Aristotle's adage. They knew that to control this word is to control not only the individual person and their choices, but to control the culture itself. 
Don't our opponents out there really know this? Absolutely, they know it. And they know, right, the, the anti-Christian culture, the anti-religious culture, the anti-contributive culture, the one that's ego-comparative, narcissistic, materialistic, and pleasure culture knows it all too well. And they want to control the view of happiness. We got to start being smart in the Catholic Church, and we got to start controlling the view of happiness. But we got to start somewhere. And where do we start? Let's start with our schools. Let's start with the group of administrators and teachers that really can see, right? You don't want to stop at the happiness levels. You want to move it forward so that you can let it affect the whole curriculum. In the old days, and with respect to the Jesuits, we used to call this the ratio studiorum, right? And, and, and just ratio just means the, the reason for studies, right? So this is basically the, you know, the rationale underlying the schools, the Catholic schools that we have. Well, uh, you know, we can go right back uh, to the very beginning schools, not just in the Jesuit order, but the ones that began to spring up all around the Roman Empire during the time of St. Augustine. First thing we got to do is control the view of happiness. Hey, what do you think Augustine was doing in the confessions, right? As you look at the confessions, you'll notice a change in the Latin word for happiness, right? When Augustine starts off, right, and he's swiping this guy's pears and eating them and just throwing them away and just having a great old time destroying, you know, this guy's, uh, you know, fruit grove and so forth and so on. You know, let's call that level one happiness, right? Uh, Augustine is satisfying his pleasure needs, but he's also asserting level two happiness, right? He's asserting his power uh, over against this um, uh, farmer who's got these trees. He's destroying his stuff and he's getting almost a gleeful response, uh, you know, um, uh, you know, as, as he destroys, needlessly destroys uh, the good fruit of, of this farmer. And of course, Augustine's now reflecting in the confessions upon himself and he's going, oh boy, you know, uh, I was really so limited in those days. I hardly knew what I was doing. You know, and off he goes to the to the Roman Forum and he, you know, just the bloodlust of all these people getting killed. And what a great time this is. I think I'll pull in a few people here too to, to get a little bloodlust addiction themselves. And uh, this is going to be a whole lot of fun. And so you look at an Augustine and go, this guy doesn't look too saintly. Uh, something is wrong here. But he'll notice that his view of happiness is changing. It's going from uh, basically uh, what we would call litus, which is kind of a materialistic pleasure thing. You know, uh, Bob Spitzer sees the bowl of ice cream, wolfs it down and goes, yum. Or Bob Spitzer gets the new Mercedes 500 E-Class and goes, yippee, right? I mean, the, the, we move from that notion to the ego comparative. That's the level two uh, culture. And his, his view of happiness, right, his word for happiness changes. It becomes right now phalanx, right, which of course, um, you know, felicitas, like uh, or, uh, felicity in English, or you can see that he's he's basically moving to an ego comparative view of happiness. Who's achieving more? Who's achieving less? Who's got more power? Who's got less power? Uh, who's more intelligent? Who's less intelligent? Uh, who's um, um, more powerful, uh, less powerful, more popular, less popular, uh, more handsome, less handsome, more beautiful, less beautiful, more athletic, less athletic, right, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So it's all about the comparison game. It's all about ego comparative advantage. But of course, there's the downside of ego comparative advantage, ever and always. Uh, no question, if you're on the winning side of ego comparative advantage, and that's what you really think will make you happy, and you're sitting on the, the top of the world there, right? You, you got more power than you can know what to do with. You got more prestige and popularity than you know what to do with. You, you know, you belong to the Mensa Society. You think you're smarter than everybody else. You, you, uh, you're you a great, handsome athlete, and uh, you do mountain climbing to Mount Everest, you know, just to, to take in a weekend, whatever. You're at the top of your game and you're driving not a stupid old Mercedes 500E class. You got yourself a brand new Maserati in the garage. You are just like the thing. Uh, how come your suicide rates are so high? 
Why is it that on a daily basis, there's inferiority, superiority, fear of failure, fear of loss of esteem, ego rage, ego blame, uh, you know, um, self-pity. Indeed, the eros of death that's embedded in self-pity. Why is there contempt for other people rather than love for other people? And in the midst of the content resentment that they haven't worshipped you enough today. Why is this endemic to practically everyone who embraces level one and level two culture. Why do we see this going on and on? Why do we see the suicide rates in our culture skyrocketing through the ceiling? Because we have a decline in religious happiness. And number two, an increase in ego comparative happiness. And at the end of the day, ego comparative happiness without religion is can, can only buy you emptiness, alienation, loneliness, and malaise on a cosmic level. You know what I mean by that? I mean, you know, the, the emptiness that comes here, you're looking at yourself in the mirror in the morning and you get this sense of emptiness. It just overwhelms you. Um, as Sartre would call it, a sense of nausea looking in the mirror because nothing's staring you back. You are of no substance, you little vacuum you. And you're looking at yourself in the mirror and you go, oh my gosh, I feel like existentially empty. You probably won't use those words, but believe me, you will feel it. Or that you're sitting there in a room, you're surrounded by your family and your friends in a wonderful, friendly event. And you go, why, I, why am I the loneliest person in the world right now? And you go, oh, that never happens to me. Oh, yeah. Just keep taking a deeper look. Those feelings of deep loneliness when you're in the midst of family and friends, when you realize that there's something missing in your life that none of your family and friends can replace, can take care of, can give you. You're lacking something, not just some substance, but some hope, some dignity, some anchoring, some mooring of your identity. And you don't have any of it. And your family member can't just stick it in you. They can't give it to you with all the nice smiles. You are as it were, existentially and spiritually lonely. And then you're walking down the street one day and you go, how come I'm out of kilter with the entire cosmos? How come it's black and dark and unfriendly out there? Why is it one big, huge, lonely and alienating? I'm not at home here, you say to yourself. Uh, well, maybe it's because on all three scores, you don't have God. Maybe St. Augustine was right, for thou hast made us for thyself, and our hearts are restless, yes, existentially and cosmically empty, alienated and lonely and filled with malaise and guilt without God, for thou hast made us for thyself, and our hearts are restless until they rest in thee. Now, that might be the answer, of course. I do think it's the answer. I don't think all the psychiatrists in the world can replace God. I don't think the most wonderful wife or husband in the world can replace God. I don't think all of the great, you know, ego comparative advantage in the world, your billion dollars, your minions at your disposal, your great talents and intellect and <clears throat> this, that, and the other thing, your popularity, your, uh, you know, your Mensa Society membership, whatever it is, it will never replace God. Your heart, as St. Augustine discovered in the confession, <clears throat> will be restless until they rest in him. So Augustine says in the confessions, right, you see that term happiness, you know, sort of morphing from um, Elitus, the materialistic and pleasure happiness, to Felix, from Felix to Beatus, right? That's like the Beatitudes, the contributive happiness, and then to the transcendent happiness, sublimitas. You can see that's really kind of joy in the spiritual sense. You can see Augustine, he goes, oh, you know, Augustine is the kind of guy that loves to run into a wall, but he's going to do it for himself. I'm going to pound my head against that wall until I'm so miserable. I'll finally ask the question, what's going wrong here? Now, Augustine did ask that question. And because he was so intelligent and because he was so open to any answer by the time the pain got really bad, he basically gets to St. Ambrose, who gets him not only to God, but to Jesus Christ. See, he thought the Manichees could do the trick for him. All he had to do was write, I'm going to join a Manichee cult. 
And then I'm going to hate my material body and I'm going to put everything into my spiritual self and my soul. And I'm going to become one of these kinds of guys that's going to be a, a super guy, right? I'm going to be a, a, one of these guys who through sheer self-discipline will rule out my body. Well, how's that working for you, Augustine? Of course, it wasn't working well. So what happens is Augustine has to uh, basically reconsider. He says, hey, these mannequins, they don't, they don't have the answer. And finally, of course, when he, you know, his mother's prayers, you know, St. Monica are working all the time. Finally, you know, uh, uh, he basically gets the idea from St. Ambrose when he meets him. Uh, he says, you know, uh, Augustine, uh, you know, you can't do this for yourself. You're a very disciplined guy. But you, even you, Augustine, cannot traverse the infinite gap between finitude and infinity. You're not going to get to me without me. You're going to need God with us. You're going to need Emmanuel. You're going to need God to come to you. Oh, Jesus. Oh, 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 oh. Now, oh, I think I'm getting it. And of course, you can get the point. Now, most of us don't have the intelligence or the heart of St. Augustine nor the energy to beat our heads against the wall continuously until we get the insight. So we've got to look at somebody like Augustine and say, okay, what's this guy telling us through the ages? He's telling us that very first part of book one, right? For thou hast made us for thyself and our hearts are restless until they rest in thee. Now, once we see this with great light, and that's what we, you know, we've we got to give it not only to our kids, we've got to give this to our uh, spiritual instructors and even to any of our, our math instructors and our physics instructors, right? We, we have to give this, this message away, but we have to do it in a, in a method that will help them to see it every step of the way. And that's what our first part of our um, journey uh, to excellence, this first part of our spiritual journey that, that for the um, school leaders and for all, well, for any leader for that matter, is to first look through the four levels of happiness. Then we need to do a real existential tour through what I would call uh, the comparison game. That's what I was talking about, like who's achieving more, who's achieving less who's more intelligent, less intelligent, more powerful, less powerful, more popular, less popular. So that's the, the kind of uh, deal. We go through it and we look at what happens when you're the winner, what happens when you're the loser, what happens when you're the drawer, and ever and always. It's ego rage, ego blame, loneliness, uh, inferiority, superiority, jealousy, fear of loss of esteem, fear of failure, you know, um, not only self-pity, but the, the, the eros of death that follows upon self-pity. And then the cosmic emptiness, alienation, loneliness, malaise that comes with the absence of God. And you pretty much put together the entire formula and go, well, what can you do? If a psychiatrist can't get you over the hump, if, you know, there's no medication that's going to get you over the hump, the only thing that can do it is God, what you going to do? you got to go to level three and level four. And then we talk about some methods that can be very helpful for getting over to level three first, the contributive view of happiness. So how can we make an optimal positive difference with our talents, our time, our energy, right? I, I can't do everything. There's no way I can ever be an athlete. Um, so, I mean, I'm blind. So I'm pretty much, you know, I, I guess I could ride an exercise cycle, but I'm not going to uh, be on the athletic field. So given that fact, I, I'm not going to concentrate on that. I got to use the gifts I do have, the time I do have. And so what do I want to ask myself? I want to ask how can I, Bob Spitzer, make an optimal positive contribution to my family? How do I, Bob Spitzer, how can I make an optimal positive contribution to my friends? How can I make an optimal positive contribution to my school if I'm a teacher, for example, or an administrative leader, uh, for example? How can I make an optimal positive contribution uh, to, to that school and to my fellow colleagues at the school? How do I make an optimal positive contribution to my church? How do I make an positive contribution to the kingdom of God, right? How, you know, how can I take all the little eternities with those transcendent souls all around me and get them to invest themselves in God before they find up, wind up being existentially empty, lonely, uh, alienated, etc.? cetera? How, how can I do that? Uh, how do I make an optimal positive difference even to uh, my community, 
or if I'm so lucky, to the culture and to the society? These are the questions that need to be on our mind because it moves us from level one and level two dominance to level three dominance. Because now it's not just being better than you. Oh, yes, I'm totally you know, in favor of having teachers build up the intelligence uh, capabilities to their students by educating them, by giving them the higher viewpoints and the knowledge that will help them succeed in the world. Please do, uh, by all means, but don't let it be an end in itself for those kids or for yourselves. In other words, what we need to do is get out of turning level two into an end in itself. Now we want to say this question instead of, how can I be better than others? How can I be smarter than others? How can I be more successful, more powerful, and more popular than others? How can I instead use the gifts that I have? So if I have some intelligence or some speech um, making gifts or some athletic gifts or some, um, you know, I've been graced by God with good looks or I've uh, been given, you know, the capacity for compassion and for empathy uh, with other people to help them in their times of, of, of suffering or just in their times of loneliness, etc. If I've got gifts, how do I want to use them to contribute optimally to the people around me? So it's not how can I be better than you? How can I use the gifts that I have to make an optimal positive difference to my family, to my friends, to the culture, to God, to uh, my school community, to the kingdom of God, to the church? How can I make an optimal positive difference to everything that I care about and God cares about? How do I make an optimal positive contribution before I die? Use every second I have to make everybody better off for my having lived. That's a good thing to start with. And then the, the next thing is to get into the whole area of, you know, how do I look at other people? The problem is if we are basically level two people, if we're ego comparative people, we're always turning people into a foil over against which to look at ourselves, right? So in other words, you know, if I need to be better than you to have any sense of dignity, I'm not going to look for the good news in you. And what Gabriel Marcel observed a long time ago is, if I don't look for the good news in you, guess what? I'm certainly not going to uh, empathize with you. If I don't empathize with you, I'm never going to be able to love you. In other words, to do the good for you so that it's just as easy, if not easier, to do the good for you as to do the good for myself. That's real love, right? Non-egocentric love that Jesus taught us about. Uh, the word agape was used by the early Christian community to communicate it, right? This agape love, I'm never going to be able to get there if I don't have any empathy for you, if I don't see any value in you, if your eyes are not the windows to your soul, or I can see your intrinsic goodness and 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 uh, lovability and transcendence in you know that unique intrinsic goodness lovability and transcendence i should say um and that's in you if i don't see that in some sense feel it in some empathetic sympathetic vibration if i don't get that how in the world will i ever be able to do the good for you care for you um uh, as if it just as easily if, as if it were doing the good or caring for myself and by the way it all begins with one little look. If you're looking for the good news in the other, you can actually see, you can sense empathetically, uh, not only the good news in that other, but their worthwhileness. I mean, their, their dignity, their, 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 their lovability, their transcendence. You can feel it directly. And once people, you know, the eyes that are windows to the soul, once they got, you know, that, that grip is on you of their goodness, love, ability, and transcendence, then, then you can open the door to a real non-egocentric love, you know, that you can do the good for others just easily as if doing the good for yourself. But looking for the good news in the other, that's not so easy. In this culture where we're comparing ourselves to others day and night, looking at who's better, who's worse, you really are almost motivated to look for the bad news in the other. So mm -hmm. much so, says uh, Marcel, that the bad news is so easy to see in our culture that it rivets us to itself, right? So here comes a person down the hallway, 
And instead of seeing the good news in that person, you are almost automatically like a default drive. You are drawn to there comes Joe down the hallway. Um, you know, he's pretty stupid. He mispronounced his words the other day and he's pretty weak. You know, he can't do much of anything. And, you know, by the way, he's very unkind. And, and uh, you know, so here comes this wick, this kind of, you know, stupid, unkind sot walking down the hallway. But I'm a good Christian. So I'm going to love him anyway, because what does not kill me makes me stronger. Well, that's not real love. Uh, that might be a nice, good, stoic discipline, but you sure don't love the guy. You're sure not going to care for the guy. You're not going to show compassion for the guy, and you're sure not going to try and serve him as if it were serving yourself. So that's that's just not going to happen. But all you need to do is do a little switch. Do this with your spouses, too, you know. I mean, uh, it's not just reserved to the, your colleagues at work. Uh, for your spouses, your children, start with looking for the good news in them. So start with the good news in the other, the little good things they try to do, the great good things they try to do. Look for their delightful idiosyncrasies. Look for that transcendent, empathetic, you know, kind of um, goodness and lovability that's just coming right out of the eyes, which are the windows to their soul. And start looking for that, you know, that, hey, this is a transcendent deep sea fish. That person is looking for perfect truth, love, goodness, beauty, and home, just like me. I mean, they've got a soul too. They're just, they're, they're looking not only for perfect truth, they're looking for God, just like me. They were created by God for himself, just like me. They've got this transcendent soul. This is this unique, transcendent, lovable, good entity, you know, whose empathy is just, you know, you know, exuding from his eyes or her eyes. Hey, stop for a second. Look for that good news. Just fix on anything you can get. And you will see the empathy starts to come. Once the empathy comes, then keep going. Because doing the good news, doing the good for them will be just as easy, if not easier than doing the good for the self. Now that becomes real love. That becomes the source of forgiveness and compassion. That becomes the source of love that will, you know, do good for others where they cannot repay me. That's the source of love where if they get into a friendship, right, they commit more to the other, the other commits more back to them, where they can get into real self-sacrificial friendships even, that they'll stop everything, that they'll sacrifice themselves, they'll give great amounts of their time to, to, you know, for another human being, just simply because, you know, in this empathetic relationship, they recognize the goodness and lovability of that other. Even if the other can't repay them, they still recognize the value of the other, the value of the relationship in and of itself, irrespective of ability to pay. And that, in, in its turn, of course, that's the love that heals the world. That's, if leaders had that kind of love, and sometimes we just say that kind of contributive view. When you combine that up with the transcendent view from faith, when you combine that up with a real encounter relationship with God that's got good intellectual conversion backing it up, when you combine that, you know, conviction, that relationship with God, with those kinds of deep empathetic relationships with other people that come with looking for the good news in them, and a whole contributive mentality about your life's purpose. You put those three things together, I can tell you this right now, you will not only be a transformed and different person who's heading toward Christ's eternal kingdom, that you will certainly be. But in addition to that, you'll probably be a person who's not just going to church. You're going to be a person who's going to develop an empathetic relationship with God, with Christ. And you'll not just be a person who's going to do all of those things. You'll be the kind of person that will leave a legacy in the world, a legacy of good contributive existence for the world far beyond you, what you could have ever expected. Not just good for the world in the sense of imminence in this world alone, but certainly you're going to affect a lot of people going to the kingdom of God. And that's going to have an eternal effect. And all those things will make all the difference between a life that's kind of like, you know, dinking along, 
a life of even great moment where you're filled with power and dignity and prestige and intelligence and beauty. Well, all that won't pale, won't pale besides the, the, beside the life that is filled with that, you know, faith in God, that relationship with God, that contributive, you know, ability with others and even the ability to help others on their way to salvation, the legacy of that kind of life. Who cares about being smarter than somebody? Look at the effects you're having. Mm -hmm. What matters at the end of the day is not how smart you were, but how you used your intelligence to make a difference where you could. At the end of the day, that'll become the purpose-driven life. See, the thing I, I love about your perspective is that it's not about professional development because that speaks to being a human doing. Yeah. But what we're wanting to do is to increase our personal development that we are a human being. And that translates into influence, whether it's in the classroom or in coaching or whatever, that, that we just become, uh, and that incarnational reality of God's love to another person. We just don't do it to another person. Yeah, no, that's absolutely true. And of course, as you are already intimating, um, you know, people know when we are a doing or whether we are a being. In fact, yeah. you just took the words right out of Gabriel Marcel's, that great uh, Catholic French philosopher's mouth, right? You know, the big difference between being and doing. And, you know, a lot of people know that, People are doers, and they have no being whatsoever. That the compassionate being is not there. The faith-filled being, the looking for the good uh, being, um, is not there. They they know. They know when you're just doing your job and checking the boxes, and they definitely know when you are doing much more because you are more. You are being more, and your being exudes the fact that you care that you genuinely want to contribute to them, that you see the intrinsic goodness, lovability, uh, and transcendence in them. They are no longer problem to you. They are mystery to you. People yeah. have what I call the mystery radar. They know whether they're viewed as you know, an object of lovability and mystery and goodness uh, to you. That is to say what we would call a subject they, or whether they are merely an object, uh, an instrumental object of your advantage or of getting the job done. People know. They can tell instantly. You walk in the door, you utter two words, they've got you pinned. You care, you don't care about them, about their students, about reality. They know. You're either a box checker or you're someone who is definitely empathetically, you know, involved, caring, uh, in, in, you know, about uh, principles, about them, about faith, about ideals, or like I said, you're mounting the, the heights of success. And you and I have both been school presidents. You know that there's a lot of attraction to such things. But mm -hmm. at the end of the day, we never got into it for that. We got into it because we wanted to serve God and serve those good little eternities, our students, and to serve the people who are serving them. And it's not just the servant leadership part of it, but it's also the part that we care about what happens to the culture, to the world, and to those students long after they've left us in our schools. Hey, Father, that's, that's a, a great perspective, I think, for, as a challenge for anybody involved in in education or in any really any walk of life but particularly i think we have a generation of young people that are looking for authenticity you bet and if they don't see it they're going to the message is going to go away i mean we can have great rhetoric about science and faith but if it isn't an authentic connection with that other person uh it it isn't going to have the same weight it might have some influence but you know, it's like, and I'm sure you're the same way. When I was uh, in high school, there are some people that still today in my 70s, I think about as being highly influential because of who they were. Yep. 
Absolutely. And the who they were, who they are is so important. We always used to say, too, you know, the kids know when you love them or when you don't love them. You know, they know. I mean, yeah. even as a priest, you know, the, they can tell the inauthentic from the authentic. I mean, um, you know, if you really care, it's written all over you. I mean, you, you almost can't hide it. And when you don't care, it's written all over you. <laughs> you can't, really hide, can't it. hide it. Yeah. And so, um, you know, it's just unfortunately, like I said, we pick up, you know, in physics, we call it a sympathetic vibration. You know, you pick up either a sympathetic or an unsympathetic vibration uh, in this great faculty that Edith Stein called empathy. Oh, well, she's not the only one, of course. Empathy was a word before Edith Stein got on the scene, but she defines it, you know, so beautifully that I saw immediately the physics analogy, you know, of the, uh, the sympathetic vibration. You know, people know. It's like one of those, have you ever seen those, uh, those mosquito repellent machines where, you know, it's got the vibration that's coming out of it. And that vibration can either attract the mosquito, oops, to its death, or um, it, uh, you know, the vibration is so bad that the mosquitoes never come near the area. Well, it's just the same way. We, we almost get that vibration, that vibe off a person. Yeah. I once was debating a guy in the Today Show on, you know, uh, uh, assisted suicide. And uh, as, um, you know, I came up to shake his hand for the debate. I mean, talk about an unsympathetic vibration. Oh, my gosh. I nearly <laughs> bolted backwards. I couldn't believe what was charging through my body. And I didn't anticipate that. You know, I was just so yeah. stunned by it. You know, it woke me up to, you know, give your better do the best effort you can, Spencer, because this guy, I don't think he's good for the culture. <laughs> uh <-huh. laughs> yeah. Not a good vibe. <laughs> yeah, that's the the whole uh mindset is if i don't win i don't eat you know <laughs> yeah. yeah yeah exactly <laughs> yeah. so father uh the journey to excellence academy where can they learn more about it i know that uh duke and ultim schools is kind of in partnership with you to recommend this where can people find out more information yeah they can go to modjuscenter.com and in there just look uh for um you know there's a little uh uh, icon there for the journey to excellence and or if you want to just go for the uh, you can see this uh, easily um, um, if you hit that icon it'll go directly to uh, the journey to excellence program there for uh, for leaders um, and uh, it'll take you uh, right to the uh, um, to the area, to the, what do they call it? The, uh, the sub menu uh, where you could have your, the various options for uh, people who can come out and do a seminar with your school mm -hmm. um, uh, to um, uh, people who will do a seminar for a diocese or the diocese is priests, or just to get some of the materials on the four levels of happiness. Uh, so we've got a lot of uh, videos on our website, uh, if you want to just try out what I was giving you the brief explanation of uh, a while back, if you want to go to um, free uh, resources and then hit, uh, there's it's divided into four sections, go to happiness and suffering. And just right there, there are many free videos on the four levels of happiness that you can get, free articles. And then I have a couple of books on this. Uh, one of them is called uh, uh, Finding True Happiness. Um, uh, that's published by Ignatius Press. And I got a very popular book uh, coming out on happiness uh, in April of 2024. And um, it will be published through Sophia Press. Okay, very good. Wow. I, and I know that <clears throat> your website has a, a lot of other information. There's so much there. I really want to encourage our audience to just take a look at the Magis website. So many free resources. And of course, uh, there are courses that people can take. There are so many things to do there. So again, uh, what a what a great place to go and to thrive uh, in our uh, faith and in our formation as persons. Well, Father Spitzer, thank you so much for being our guest today on Follow to Lead. This has been really rich, and I so much appreciate your time. Oh no, thanks so much too, Father. I really appreciate the opportunity and and. Uh, uh, as what you're doing at Duke and Altum is fantastic, and uh, I truly appreciate it. Well, thank you so much. And also, for more information about the Duke and Altum Schools Collaborative, please visit our website at diaschools.org. And if you haven't already done so, please subscribe to our YouTube channel or follow our podcast. 
and uh, leave a comment for us toward future programming. May Almighty God bless you. We'd like to thank you for joining us on this episode of Follow to Lead, a production of the Duke and Altum Schools Collaborative. To learn more about finding your own path in your journey of faith, or for more information on what we discussed in today's episode, you are invited to follow us on social media and visit us on the web at diaschools.org. To provide a one-time donation or monthly pledge, please visit our website. Your gift will aid us in providing up-to-date information, additional resources, and other support on how to take Catholic education to a higher level. We look forward to helping you follow God's call to lead others to God right here on Follow to Lead.